All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? Nice to uh, talk to you. It's Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast that I host out of my garage, which is getting dusty, man. I've been, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Anyways, my guest today, James Taylor, on the nicotine gum, brothers, kindred spirits. This conversation was something beyond anything I expected. I, I don't, I can't even tell you how great I felt after this conversation. The garage, man, I got to empty it. I got to take it all out and put uh, some of it back in. This, uh, I've been noticing this and don't tell any of the people that are coming over, please. But, uh, you know, I clean, but I don't, you know, thoroughly clean. I've dusted a bit, but, you know, I've been at this in here for, what, five years, going over five years, and uh, and shit comes and goes in this garage. People come and go. Stacks of things come and go. Uh, I just haven't, you know, and things get hung up, and uh, it's just, I guess the point I'm trying to make, you know when you go to, a like, a, an old um roadside museum or something and the uh the displays they look a little beat up they look a little dusty i mean there was a time i think where this garage was just um beaming with a sort of you know cluttered intensity and now because uh, it needs a thorough cleaning it's sort of like ooh there seems to be a a bit of dust on that old uh, baby in a jar exhibit wow look at that the presidential cup Looks like that glass dome can use a bit of a cleaning. Yeah, so already there's a, there's a, oh God, see right there. There's just like, and what is that, mostly skin? Is that what they say dust is? Mostly skin? So like I've got, God knows, I, I've got uh, a lot of uh, celebrity skin particles on a lot of stuff in here. That was a little tip of the hat to uh, Courtney Love. I don't think that's where the title of that, uh, that album came from but nonetheless i do need to clean it and uh, i've i've i'm gonna get some office space down the street very excited about it not gonna tip it too much but i just i got myself a little office so i can get the fuck out of the house (laughs) and feel like i'm going to another place to do some work here's the problem and maybe some of you can relate to this if you're self-employed which i am uh heavily self-employed is that like no matter what i do uh my job is here for the most part you know i go do stand-up and stuff but you know i work in the garage i come out here i interview people i get a lot of stuff sent to the show i get records books cds things it's like a radio station over here a lot of unsolicited stuff a lot of exciting stuff what you start to realize is that your work you know starts to sort of even out with anything else you have to do in your house like, you know, I had to go, I had to walk down to the shed down there that I moved. I moved my little shed down there to get a, a pliers to, you know, to take the uh, a, a brass uh, screw thing out of a mic here to record a thing. So that is just the same as, you know, me doing some writing or me not necessarily interviewing a guest, but preparing to interview a guest is that doing my dishes and getting some writing done have equal status in my brain when you work where you live. So that means when you sit down to work, you don't know whether you're going to prioritize like, oh, I got to make a cake for no fucking reason. The distractions are there, but there are also things you have to do. So that's the struggle of being uh, self-employed. So I've uh, afforded myself 
a very reasonable and practical office space that I'm going to go down to so I can free up my fucking dining room from stacks of books, records, and CDs that I got to go through. Not complaining. I'm also going to be able to meet people there. And I, you know, it's very exciting for me to, for once in my life, go, um, hey, can you meet me at my office? <laughs> um, let's talk at my office. How's that sound? Try that on. Try that on in your head. But maybe, maybe with the office, I can, you know, take the time to, uh, to fucking thoroughly clean the garage exhibit. You know what I'm saying? So look, we're still going through, uh, Past episodes of WTF here trying to put together the big picture on the uh, on on the the myth, the legend that is Warren Michaels as we lead up to my conversation with him. Here's me and Amy Poehler from episode 183. She actually was able to help me see him uh, in in a different light, and he, even if it didn't stick, she 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 enabled me to see him differently. What is it? I know you've to- to- told this story, but you... Just one. I've only met him once. I know. And he just was... <sighs> you hated it. No, I didn't hate it. He just... I think he really just wanted to teach me a lesson. Mm-hmm. I don't... <laughs> but were you close... You were close to doing Update, right? Well, I mean, that was the talk. Yeah. You know, but then, like, I'd heard other versions. Like, you know, he was just using me to pressure Norm or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But he made me jump through a lot of hoops, and it was all very exciting. But I've seen as I get older... You know, like I read that book about uh, you know the 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 the, the war for late night about the Conan O'Brien yeah. thing, and and he really is you know ha- he appears in there occasionally, and it's very Buddha like. Yeah. You know, like he's very set. He's Lorne Michaels, but he seemed m- more human to me in that book. I see. I have a very human relationship. With yeah. Him, you know. Yeah. His relationship. I always had a theory that. He brought out a lot of daddy issues uh-huh. in people. Uh-huh. So for everybody, for everybody, yeah. And the way you kind of re- reacted to him—not always, but was sometimes indicative of how you had to deal with your own father. Uh huh. Because there would be—I would see things that, to me, in you know, subjectively, a moment that I didn't—that didn't trigger me in the same way I saw it trigger trigger other people. <sighs> yeah. You know. Yeah. But um, he is a king of the kingdom. You know, that is a kingdom of which he is king. Yeah. And that doesn't really happen very much anymore where you get to see a king in his kingdom, yeah. really. But, um, talking to his subjects. Talking to his subjects, yeah. yeah. And he likes it. Yes. And I um, I liked it, too. I liked it. The he, attention? I yeah. liked the attention. And I also just found him to be very fair yeah. at the end of the day. In, in the sense of what? I thought he was fair... Um, and again, this is my experience. I know everyone's had many different yeah. But I found him very fair in his creative decisions. Like, I always thought he was, you know, funny and smart and picked things that were funny and smart. Like, he fought for that. He was a very, lo- I think he's a very loyal person. Uh-huh. To people he liked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Hader told the story about how they were doing this sketch that was kind of weird, and it was his first big sketch, and it... You know, and uh, it was uh, he was this. He played Vincent Price, and mm-hmm. I can't remember what the sketch was, mm-hmm. but but Hater was nervous going in to do his Vincent Price, and apparently, right before he went on, Lauren said, "Why now?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of brilliant, but completely undermining. Yes, yeah. And I, the, 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 what a terrible thing to hear, right? Yeah, the sketch. And, yeah, and it kind of fucked with him completely. Yeah. Amy and I talked about Lauren for about 15 minutes in that episode, and she actually has a really 
healthy perspective on on his role in her life, which I I don't really. You can check out that entire episode on Howl Premium. Uh, it's episode 183. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the more we go through this stuff, I, I could put together an entire series of episodes just on people talking about Lorne at my egging. Did I mention James Taylor is here? Now, look, this is one of those things where we all know James Taylor. Did I ever think I would talk to James Taylor? The opportunity came, and I'm like, James Taylor. Fucking James Taylor is James Taylor, man. Sweet Baby James, Mudslide Swim, and The Blue Horizon. Those are not little records. Those are big fucking records, and they're part of my childhood. Like, I remember, I told him this, I think. I remember my parents. Do you remember the first few records you saw as a kid that your parents had? My parents had Sweet Baby James, and I saw the cover of that, and I knew that that guy was not necessarily a happy guy. I knew that there was something up with that face. And I was it sort of was intimidating. It was intense. I mean, the cover of Sweet Baby James, I guess some people were like, oh, look at the sweet man. But I was like, oh, there's something something dark in there. And it, it, it kind of frightened me on a level that I didn't quite understand. Not unlike the uh, Janis Joplin Pearl cover. She was so cute, so stunning. And all I knew is she died from heroin. I was like, how could that happen to that cute, stunning person? But James Taylor, I was like, oh, something's going on in there. But somehow or another, James Taylor got sort of uh, kind of sh- pushed aside in the cultural shelf as being James Taylor. And he began to represent, you know, something very specific, but not necessarily something of my generation would be like, fucking James Taylor, man. Holy shit. James fucking Taylor. Rock and roll. Not something you hear in that tone. So I think I became victim to that when I got the opportunity to talk to James. I'm like, yeah, he's got a new record out. And it sounds a lot like James Taylor. Uh, it's called Before This World. It's available now. It's a pretty classic James Taylor sounding record. But when I was offered the opportunity, I'm like, yeah, of course, I'll talk to James Taylor. It's got to be a story. It's been around a long time. And I'll tell you, man, I was nervous about it because I didn't know if he talked. I didn't know where he was at or who he was. I don't know a lot of times, uh, you know, what people sound like or how they handle themselves. So it was sort of, it was sort of a mystery to me, but I was excited about it. And when he showed up, I was out here in the garage, and I got a guy working for me part-time. Frank, he comes out, he says, they're here. And I walk in, and this has never happened before. I, I got a guitar in the, in the living room that I dick around on. You know, I like to have a guitar around for when I'm watching TV and when I just want to play with a, a record or something. And I walk into the living room, and this is the first time this ever happened. James Taylor is just sitting quietly on my couch, plunking away on my guitar. Which I, I like, I love a guy that just can't not play a guitar. I know some people who have guitars or, you know, their first impulse is like, oh, yeah, could you, not, did you, are your hands clean? Did you, well, could you put the guitar down? But me, I'm like, that's a guy that has to play guitar. And uh, I was, I thought it very, it was very charming. And it, it gave me a very good sense of him, just sort of like, just sitting there playing a guitar because there was a guitar to play. It's like, I'm not going to talk, I'm going to play guitar. And then we come out here. And he picks up this old uh, beat-up K that I have, this garbage guitar that, you know, is, is, uh, is, is, is kind of a great guitar. And he starts playing that. And I was like, this guy cannot not play guitar. And uh, I like that because that's a relationship that's very important to him. And sadly, because we had such a great conversation, <laughs> it, uh, I didn't ask him to play guitar or, or sing he didn't, he didn't bring his guitar, so I just assumed maybe he wasn't into it. But I probably could have asked him, but I, I tell you, I got lost in this conversation, and I love talking to James Taylor. 
Now, look, before I go to uh, the interview with James Taylor, I want to tell you about this music you're about to hear. This is by an Australian musician named Gerard Daly. He was at my show in Melbourne, and he had such a good time, he wrote this song about it the next morning. I found it very touching. You can check out the song on his SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Gerard M. Daly. That's G-E-R-A-R-D-M-D-A-L-E-Y. And the song is called One of Those Nights. Oh, my God. James Taylor's here. I, I have to say that you are the only guy, and I'm, I'm happy you did it, that uh, that I've had over who plays music that uh, cannot help but pick up a guitar. Well, it, it's a it's it's nice. I used to play a, a Gibson in the in the beginning. The three thirty five, not that one, uh, but uh, you know a Gibson guitar, an acoustic, a J fifty. A J fifty. That was your first acoustic. It was my second acoustic. My first was uh, a sort of no name guitar that I bought at Shermer Music in in uh, New York City, or or more accurately, my my folks bought it for me when I hounded them into buying me a guitar so was it uh, was it your first instrument uh i had played uh, cello yeah for uh, four years between the ages of eight and twelve and uh, <laughs> really yeah yeah so, uh, like were you did you have a uh, aptitude for it you know no i wasn't a particularly uh, a good cello player and uh <laughs> so you had to let and, that go uh, i i i well i i picked it up again uh recently i i uh I got a cello, and, uh-huh. and uh, you know, so I, I, I it comes and fits and starts. I'll play it for a few months and and get some chops back on it, and then uh, let it slide again. But um, no, I, I switched over to the guitar when I was twelve, and uh, you know, for the same reason we all did. Right, because yeah. it's a more practical instrument that you can play on your own. Yes. And uh, still be entertaining to yourself and others. That's right, and it, <laughs> it speaks back to you really quickly, and yeah. it, and it um, you know it's a good uh, it's good for accompanying you and, and speaks it, back to you. That's yeah. an interesting way of putting it that that you have a, an immediate relationship with a, with a guitar, and and what it can do and what you can do and you know what you can do to to get what you're feeling out through it. That's right, and and that's you know that that's the point with any instrument. That's sort of the, the the magic point at which you know you can't put it down. When yeah, it, when it starts uh, really uh, um, giving you what you what you want to hear. It took me a long time to to realize that uh, virtuosity is 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 not necessarily relevant to getting what you need to get across. That's a really good point. You know, it it's true. I I'm I'm a very practical player. Uh huh. You know, I I have a a vernacular, a, a like a vocabulary on the on the guitar that that um, that has expanded over time, mm-hmm. uh, but that really suits me, you know, as a songwriter. So. Well, you learned how to finger pick at some point. I mean, you do. Did. You're good at it. Yeah, I did finger. I always have finger pick. And did you learn it from somebody? Um, uh, you know, I picked it up from a lot of different people. There used to be this guy named uh, uh, Travis. Yeah. Uh, Merle Travis. Who yeah. Was, had this thing called uh, Travis Picking. Oh, really? It was, it was a... sort of a rolling uh, kind of uh, walking bass with your thumb and, uh-huh. and uh, uh, playing on top of it. And uh, he and uh, an old uh, Elizabeth Cotton, an old blues player yeah. from North Carolina, uh, th- they had this, and a guy named Joseph Spence, who, mm-hmm. who uh, made this fantastic record called Music of the Bahamas. Yeah. Joseph Spence, uh-huh. Elizabeth Cotton, and Merle Travis were the people that inspired me, and of course, forever to me, the um, 
uh, Ry Cooter is the is the epitome of, of, of finger picking. To me. He's sort of a, a a wizard of all sorts. Yeah, he's an, he's like a musicologist or you know at least something else. I just talked to uh, Keith Richards and and Keith credits Ry with that five that open five string tuning that he does. Yeah. Do you know Do you know Ry? Are you friends with him? I've met him a couple of times. He played on uh, on the title track to the October Road album and. Uh, played beautifully so that was a few albums back it was the last one well it was a few albums back but it was the uh the one before uh this present album before this world october road was the release some sometime i think in in 03 or 02 and uh-huh. it was uh it was the last studio album of original material yeah and when you play with somebody like Rye, who having respected him over for so many years and maybe met him once or twice, is it just like, uh, are you like a kid, you know, in the studio watching that guy work? I have h- such huge uh, respect and admiration for the man that yeah. uh, it is a little bit daunting. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and, and, you know, he's, uh, he's a, a great cat and, yeah. and always an enthusiast, but uh, can be a little crusty too, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. My buddy owns a record store down around the corner, a used record store. And I don't know if it was this one or the one in New York, but he thinks that Ry Cooter came in, looked through the bins, and came up to him and said, how come the Ry Cooter albums are so cheap? <laughs> <laughs> My friend said, I, I don't think he's really caught on yet as a revival artist. Okay. And so he's if that was him, he, he can be crusty. And, and I think some guys who are certainly, some guys who are geniuses that, that, that may not get their... They're they're due, respect wise from the public. Right, might get a little crusty. Yeah, you can't you can't blame them. No, nope, no. Nope. But I think uh, you know Rye is among musicians. He's, yeah, he's so universally uh, uh, respected. That, oh yeah, you know, sure. Yeah, he's it, great. Paradise and Lunch was transformed me. That album. Uh, how did it transform you? I just played that album all the time, and I just <laughs> loved uh, what he was doing with the guitar. What year that. was that? Seventy two. Oh really? Yeah, so 70, early on. Seventy one. And where, where, what were you? What brought you to music initially? Where'd you grow up? I I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh yeah. And my brother Alex was a you know we had a family record collection that was really uh, fantastic. Uh, my folks used to play that music all the time. I can't stress to people how important it is what music you play for your kids. And yeah, what'd uh, you get? Man, we got a really wide spectrum of stuff. We got uh, a lot of Broadway. You know, yeah, um, uh, and Rogers and Hammerston and Cole Porter and uh, Frank Lesser, but we also got and and uh, things like uh, the Weavers and and uh, Pete Seeger. We uh-huh. got we got Lead Belly. My father uh, bought Lead Belly albums. Uh, my uh, so you had all that stuff. I mean, Lead Belly is important. And man. then and then we got a lot of uh, um, uh, like Celtic music. You know. Uh, is that a family tradition? I mean, are you, are you not you, so much? It's just what they liked, you know. They 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 were, were into it. Yeah, they were into it, and then there were light classics and and jazz, and uh, there was a, a satirical kind of uh, songwriter named um, uh, Lair. Tom Lair. Tom Lair. Yeah, yeah from, uh, from Boston, from MIT. Yeah. yeah, and and we played his album all the time too. So, so you got that, some laughs. Got some laughs, and it also sort of opened us up to uh, you know that kind of. Uh, Slightly political or, yeah. or you know, socially uh, uh, motivated music, you know. And and how many kids were in your family? 
There were five of us. Yeah, because I know, like, I went to college in Boston. I lived in uh, Boston and on for years. So, I, I Livingston Taylor, your brother was uh, sort of ever present, always present in the in the New England area. That's right. Uh, playing music, um, and your other sibs, did they play? Yeah, they did. Um, uh, my my older brother Alex and uh, he started a band when we were in high school in Chapel Hill. And he was old. He was he one older than you, or are you the second one in? Yeah, I'm the second one in. He yeah. was the uh, he was the eldest. Uh, yeah. just a year older than I. Uh-huh. And um, uh, you know he he uh, exposed me to the sort of second tier of of my musical um, you know uh, world. You need that guy. You need the older brother. You need the older brother, and he <laughs> he was so into. Uh, um, you know, I think he got into it through beach music, uh, the beach music yeah. scene. But but he he deeply got into uh, um, soul music in the in the South, um, and would make these uh, long trips to listen to various artists: Don Covey, Joe Tex. Uh, Joe Tex, that's uh, deep stuff. Uh, yeah, he's and, heavy, man. And and uh, would listen to uh, you know Jimmy Reed and oh yeah, Jimmy Reed. <laughs> And uh, big boss man, yeah, yeah, and and uh, but also Ray Charles and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, Jackie Wilson, and he he exposed me to a lot of stuff um, that was important, and and then we we played in a band together and played a lot of those songs. You know? Sure, I mean you can hear that. I mean you did uh, what was that big hit you had? Steamroller was it? Steamroller, steamroller. That's yeah. almost like a Jimmy Reed tune. It you know it's a it's a twelve bar blues. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. it, you know it's a it's a satire. It's right. a it's a spoof. You know of uh huh. You know of what that type of song? Yeah, well, if, but so of, many of those songs are really like that. I well, mean, uh, yeah, but you know, it's one thing to be Muddy Water, water right. singing "I'm a Man," and it's right. another thing to be a pimply white uh, adolescent <laughs> singing "I'm a Man." So yeah. that, that's what the joke was. There, <laughs> okay, you know? yeah. but so all right, so you're growing up in Chapel Hill, and uh, what's your what's your old man do? My father's a doctor. Still, um, no, he's, he's no, he's he's gone now. Yeah. but but he was uh, he he moved us down in 1951 in a. In a 1950 Plymouth station wagon. Yeah, um, uh, he drove my brother and I down, and my my mom took the train with the little ones. Yeah, and uh, we moved to uh, Carborough, North Carolina, which was the home of Elizabeth Cotton. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't know if she was there then or not, but that was 51, and and um, he started working for the University of North Carolina as a, as a staff doctor. As, uh, he taught medicine for a while and ended up being. Um, uh, the dean of the medical school there, and and basically building the the medical school with a, a couple of other early guys. So what type of doctor? Uh, he was an internist, uh-huh. um, you know, originally, uh, and did some research uh-huh. too. Um, but uh, you know, um, he got into medical administration uh-huh. and, and was sort of more interested in building the the school. Yeah, I grew up. My father was a doctor. It's always good to have a doctor around. <laughs> I don't know what it does, you know. <laughs> what do you feel like it did to you? I know what it did to me. Uh, you know, you develop a sort of, uh, I do remember there was never a, a concern about getting to a doctor. That's right. <laughs> a, a certain uh, a certain detachment about your own health, maybe. Uh-huh. But also I found that they were kind of self-involved. Well, my father was. Uh, you know, they were always on, it always seemed that the work they were doing was very important. Right. And that uh, that uh, whatever uh, emotional detachment he may have had was for the service of the bigger good. Yes, that's right. I, I, uh, they, they were detached people. Yeah, you know, a little and, bit. Uh, I think surgeons are another level of that. Altogether. That's what my dad was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think they have to be. Um, you know, they have to have a certain amount of, of, uh, of, um, you know, self assurance and uh, and 
and an assumption that yeah. that they can make these big decisions and that they're right in doing so. right with, without without thinking too much about That's it. Right. I yeah. mean, you got to say it would drive them crazy. You know? Yeah, or you know, you just uh, you you're just going to have to go in and cut and hack and do what you got to do. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> did you get along with him? I did. I love my dad, and uh, and he was uh, he was really good to me. But he was not a um, in many ways not a happy person and uh you know our our family sort of came off the rails in the late 60s um you know my mom and dad split up and, oh they did yeah and um uh it just was uh it happened in a in a period of about two years you know my my brother alex who's dead now uh and died of uh of alcohol um he started to uh to you know, he started on a on a path of uh, real self destruction. My, um, uh, the, my my folks' uh, breakup was. You know, it happens so frequently that you think of it as being routine, but uh, it's a big deal. When and that, especially in that era, it was not that common necessarily. Right, and uh, I ended up in a uh, you know a psychiatric hospital and was followed by uh, by my the next two siblings. So. This um, was before you even started professionally playing and everything. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was in my senior year of high school. What were you suffering from? Um, it was called uh, depression. Mm-hmm. You know, depression, and it was like just a, a common teenage angst. Sure, but, but it it felt pretty. Um, you know, I was impressed. Were you suicidal? <laughs> suicidal, yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you do you uh, attribute the divorce to that, or do you look back and uh, whatever your experience, which has been uh, harrowing at times, uh, do you see it as a chemical problem? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think it may have been a combination of, uh, I mean, I think we are, you know, our our brains are, are, are a chemical process, and, mm-hmm. and I think we're evolutionarily uh, predisposed to a certain kind of life. And uh, if we're removed from that, um, it can be difficult. But it's just that particular time, uh, that passage of, uh, of of late adolescence or mid adolescence, mm-hmm. uh, it can be a, a very harrowing time of uh, of of trying to just a vulnerable sure. uh, time where, where you're you're trying to find your way and and figure out who you're going to be in the world and if there's a place for you and you're being delivered this body and metabolism and mind that. Yeah. You were really born with, in a sense, and then uh, for me, uh, self-medication started uh, when I, you know, when I went to New York and started playing rock and roll. So, and, so after you got out of the hospital, and also I think, you know, when you're sensitive, it doesn't make it any easier. Well, <laughs> you know, when you feel things yeah. deeply, uh, you know, I think some people are a little more uh, equipped sometimes. Well, yeah, they. I think some people do have a sort of a more positive uh, assumption about life, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, those people. <laughs> and uh, you know, and that's that's great. I, you know, God bless them. And and, and also, uh, I think people have faith uh, that their families uh, sort of indoctrinate them in. Sure. They're they're little. It's and it goes beyond just the religion they're in. It also has to do with how they seem to feel about the world. And yeah, a so, whole point of view. Yeah. Perspective. So you were not given either any of that. Well, you know, I, I think I was given other things, but uh, but I was, you know, I I just had that uh, a, a, what felt to me like a pretty extreme version of that that teenage uh, vulnerability and, and anxiety. So um, uh, and, and a heavy heart. 
you know, maybe so. And and uh, and at the same time, both the culture in mm-hmm. the late '60s and my family were sort of coming unglued. You know, right. So it, it was an interesting uh, passage for me. Um, I, I felt as though checking into uh, the the, uh, the psychiatric hospital and um, and spending my college fund in about six months. Um, uh, it gave me permission to go or do whatever I wanted. Your, fa- like, with your father signed off on that. You decided on your own that I'm going to check into a hospital because I got problems. Where were you? Your parents were that chaotic that they they weren't part of that. They didn't. They they didn't really notice. Other people noticed. Uh-huh, uh, but who, when you decided to go to. in, what did your dad say? Well, you know, the first thing is uh, um, people who knew my family yeah. well and and teachers at the school I were, was trying to stay in. Um, uh, they they said um, you know w- we think that James ought to ought to talk to somebody mm, you know so right. they, they sent me to someone at Children's Hospital and the guy said well I want you to go to McLean's for uh, you know he was concerned and he said I want you to go to McLean Hospital for some observation so you had to go up to New England to do it no so. I was at New England in the t- at the time I'd been sent to a boarding school which and, one. Uh, Milton Academy. Oh, Milton Academy. I yeah. went to Curry College, oh, which yeah. is down the street. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. I know Milton, yeah. right on the border of Mattapan. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. That's oh, right. so you're a college, you're at that prep school, losing your mind, being yep. you know depressed, and they yep. send you over to the best psychiatric hospital in the country at the time, I believe. I think they did, and yeah, and uh, you know my my folks were. As I said, they were they were preoccupied right. with other things going sure. on, and I, I think it's a time when you really need when young people need their families to sort of support them into adulthood. You know, and and give them some tools, give them some tools, but also some support and some guidance, and just to let them know that they're they're watching them. You know, mm-hmm. you and, didn't feel um, that. No, I don't think we did really, because I think they really were. They had their hands completely filled. My fa- my father was alcoholic, and I think things were. Oh, really, was he? Yeah, they were overwhelming him. What form was he? Uh, uh, violent or just? No, uh, no, he was. Uh, he was, you know, as as functioning an alcoholic as you could hope to find, and and a loving person, really. I, I, but you had it in your family. But it was in there. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's in there. Uh, good. It killed my brother. No question. Took him right out. And did you? Did he try to to get clean at different times? Yeah. Oh. But there just wasn't enough on the other side of life. Oh, it's brutal, dude. I got 16 years sober. I, I, know, I know. There are days where you're like, know. what's the point? Yeah. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And I guess that's where music came in, huh? Hmm. You know, yeah, music did, uh, uh, really did solve a lot of, uh, you know, it just spoke to me. And I, I was, uh, you know, kids don't need much. Young Young people mm-hmm. don't need much to feel as though they have an anchor in the world and that they're a go, you mm-hmm. know, like there is some way forward for them. Well, when you moved to New York, when you were fresh out of the hospital, yes. you know, and yep. and you, you, you had your uh, your finger picking in place or yeah, what? You I did. did. I, I'd, I'd written some songs and uh, I was starting to write more. And uh, Were you I, a solo act? No, I, I, uh, I had worked with a, a friend of mine that I knew from, see, my mom was a... a the daughter of a New England fisherman, uh-huh. and she she came from Newburyport, Massachusetts. Sure. And um, she, uh, when my dad moved to Salt, she met my my father when when he was uh, at Mass General a, as an intern, uh-huh. and um, and he then when he uh, when four of us were born in New England, and he was uh, uh, coming into 
making a decision about how he was going to actually practice and what his gig was going to be, he decided to move back to North Carolina. Uh-huh. And, uh, he was from there? He was from there. Okay. He was from Morganton, North Carolina. Uh-huh. And, uh, southern boy. Yes, a southern boy, uh, a sort of Faulknerian tale of, uh, of a very heavy and, and, uh, and, and uh, impossible uh, childhood, really, from really? my dad. Yeah. Uh, really? A, 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 very, uh, a very hard Dark. Uh, story to tell. Yeah, very Faulkner. Faulknerian kind well, Did you of have a relationship with that side of the family? Uh, no, not really. Uh-huh. Not really. That that was also a very uh, uh, hard... Well, you know, everything's relative. Sure. But it, uh, everything's relatives, as they say. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, but as, my, as, as, as Einstein's brother-in-law used to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing is, uh, my mom met my dad, and, and every... Every chance she got, she yeah. she tried to sort of save us from North Carolina, you know, as it were. <laughs> she she was afraid we were going to attach down there, that we'd absorb the local zeitgeist, that we would basically become uh, of that place. The and worst she, part of the the worst uh, it was, idea of the South, it, perhaps. I think because it's I beautiful think, down there. I think she was alarmed by. Uh, she was on the picket lines. Right. Uh, she was, uh, you know, sitting in and in, mm-hmm. in restaurants that were trying to to uh, integrate. Um, you know, it. She she would bring us to North uh, from North Carolina up to New York to to see s- some plays. She would uh, enroll us in various programs that got us out in the summertime. Sure. <laughs> she she drove the whole family up to Martha's Vineyard, which in those days was not a millionaire's uh, um, ghetto. Uh-huh. It was a it was a cheap, um, a sort of uh, a progressive place for for families to uh, uh, f- from the you know sort of uh, uh, academics and artists sure. to to hang out from the from the eastern seaboard. So she would take us up there every summer and uh, rent a house and or a little. We had a little place with no electricity. We camped out. We had the best time in the world. But my point was that that I, um, you know, I. I uh, on the vineyard is is one of the places where I I got into music because there was a lot there was a great coffee house there called the Moon Cusser yeah and uh, that was associated with the Club Forty Seven in 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 Cambridge uh-huh. and there was great music there and there was an open mic night there were places to play and I met my friend Danny Korchmar there who was from Mamaroneck um, New York from Westchester right and he really he was the third level of my musical. Education, but like forever, like you've been working with him forever. That's right. So we played our first gigs together when he was seventeen and I was fifteen, and then we uh, we started the flying machine together. After I got on McLean's, I went down to New York uh, and with a friend of mine, my best friend, oldest friend Zach Wiesner, uh, we went down to New York City and and uh, um, along with a a drummer that Cooch knew, who happened to be a, a heroin addict and and was yet another stage in my education but not musical uh, no musical as well yeah. uh, uh, Joel O'Brien was was a fantastic drummer but uh also a just a a, a consumed enthusiast about uh-huh. music and uh-huh. he he introduced me to latin music to brazilian music to another whole layer of uh, rhythm and blues uh-huh. to to country music to sinatra no kidding yeah and, and heroin and heroin yeah. at the same time. so <laughs> you know and yeah. and unfortunately you know i i was uh 
I was one of these, you know, adolescent ouch cubes sort of, you know, cringing across the landscape. And uh-huh. when I found heroin, I, I was just gone. Uh, relief. Yeah. Relief. relief. Yeah. So with me, it wasn't, I wasn't seeking uh, ecstasy or oblivion. I was just looking to get normal. You know? I know. I believe me. I, 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 I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, uh, the discomfort of anxiety and dread and panic and, you know, being too sensitive in the world. So I imagine that given a few weeks with heroin, you're like, oh, my God, you could breathe. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's uh, sad but true, and I think it's an epidemic in our country today, and a lot of people are feeling that. But I, Opiates, you know, yeah. But the way, the way I, I, I felt about it was that um, the way I've come to feel about it is that I was probably, you know, um, like uh, rowing of some Viking boat yeah. across the seas in a, for, in a former life, and... You know, when you sit me down in a in a sort of suburban context, I I just you know m- my uh, m- my nervous system and my body and my entire uh, wiring is just not ready for it. You know, I'm ready for something else. I I'm ready for crisis. I'm ready for war. I'm I'm ready for you right. know to battle the elements. But I you know I or to you know raid villages or something sure. or defend villages. But I'm. I'm I'm not comfortable, uh, um, you know, on the on the Just couch sitting. watching watching baseball. No. But you didn't grow up in chaos, so really until like late adolescence, right? I mean, most of your childhood was was repressed in a way. Uh, I would imagine. Well, you know, there were. I I don't mean to make it seem like a, a you know too much of a Faulkner novel. It 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 was a fantastic. You know, yeah. most of it was fantastic. Yeah. I, we just came off the tracks in the late 60s sure. with yeah. the rest of the and, culture at the same time. And you had this amazing mom who wanted to expose you to uh, everything uh, uh, glorious about the arts. Exactly. And then and then meeting, uh, you know, Danny and this uh, and O'Brien and, and your best friend and going to New York. It, it's weird with drugs in the sense that. There is a price to pay for your uh, uh, amazing worldly education sometimes. And and I think sometimes whether it was for relief or what, you know, the drug culture at that time was what it was, right? Yes, it was. It, it was it, nobody knew what what was on the other side, mm-hmm. you know. And it just seemed like, you know, I was living until the end of the week. I had no idea about there being a future about uh and This any, was with the flying machine. Yeah, this is with the flying and machine. That was a, and that uh, there were four of you. Two guitars, a bass, and a drum. Well, uh, yeah, guitar, bass, uh, and drum. That's right. Two guitars, bass, and drums. Exactly. And that, well, I imagine not unlike we spoke at the beginning about uh, how a guitar speaks to you. I, I, I imagine the way heroin speaks to you over a time is a is a is a shitty dialogue because <laughs> yes. it doesn't leave you much choice. And I know it was a lifetime struggle. But what uh, what what kind of music? How did your musical style evolve? Did you find that with the dope that 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 in, informed uh, the laid backness that initially came over you? I mean, did you find that you know now that you're past dope and past all that stuff, do you attribute any of your your groove to to drug culture? No, none at all. Mm-hmm. I I feel as though I was self medicating. I was looking to get normal, right? Not looking to get high, right? And um. I've written a lot of uh, recovery songs sure. since I've been in recovery, but how long uh, you got? Uh, Thirty-two years now. Oh, congratulations! Nineteen eighty-three. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, right? It is a wonderful thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, I can't. Uh, sure. I can't, yeah. you know, be uh, presume that it, that it's uh, that I'm there, right? You know, because it's I, uh, yeah, it's waiting. Yeah, I, I, I know. I have had a slip. So. Oh, have you? Yeah, how about, long ago was that? About, about uh, twelve years ago. Oh yeah, and what? 
you know, painkiller, regular painkiller. Yeah, so yeah, sure, after sure. After surgery. Yeah, that's what that's what happens, man. That's what you know. It's like I remember that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Terrible. Well, good. I'm glad you got past it. Thanks. So when did you shift from the band to solo? What happened? Well, um, the flying machine, uh, you know, we uh, in those days it was uh, record or die. Mm-hmm. And um, we signed to, uh, uh, we got a couple of people interested in us uh, um, who were, uh, I guess they were music publishers. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I signed away my publishing um, for that uh, non non deal, as it were. But uh, we signed to these guys, and they were supposed to put us in the studio. And in fact, we spent two days in the studio, and then they told us uh, this isn't happening. Um, but the uh, the the paper I signed came back to haunt me, and also uh, after Sweet Baby James came out, and and the. Uh, I had some success. Uh, they found all the old, uh, you know, half-baked shit that we did in the uh, in the studio in those two days, and they just released all of it. Oh, really? It's a album. flying machine album. Yeah, that's right. And it's, they, it's a bootleg, and it's a boondoggle, and it's a you know, it's a piece of crap. Really. It's out in the world, though. Oh yeah, I, I sign three or four of them a day when I'm on the road. Oh, you know, you, so, so you don't mind doing that? Do I don't you, mind signing them, but I... Do you I, tell the person, it's like, well, you know, I don't condone this. No, do not, you see it more as a relic? I don't I don't really. I I, I occasionally tell people, uh, you don't actually listen to this, do you? All right. <laughs> right. So they had you up through uh, the first James Taylor record and Sweet Baby James, the publishing deal? Uh, they had me until uh, um, One Man Dog. Oh, my God. So they just uh, took my publishing. That's and you never got it back? Uh, I got 50% of it back after a certain point. Wow. So that, well, that, that resentment alone would fuel an ongoing drug addiction. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, there are so many stories of people being ripped off of, right. of musicians, sure. particularly writers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bonnie Raitt has the Rhythm and Blues Foundation, uh, along with a guy named Howell Beagle. And uh, they've done as much as they can to redress some of that, but it was just, uh, you know, it was just assumed that if you, if someone allowed you to record, they were going to take all the money. Right. You got to record your music, they'll take the money. Right. You know? and, and that was just the way it was. Yeah, that's the so, way it was. But, and I, f- I felt as though, you know, I made, I have my own personal version of that story i think a lot of people do sure oh no i've heard it before in here so when you did the first james taylor record uh you know which was solo where how did that come about i mean before sweet baby james because that that was really the first time i ever saw is my parents had the the album sweet baby james and i would i'd see your face and i and i listen to the record but i mean i'm talking i'm like eight nine years old seven years old and i would see that face and it was a very intense album cover, that cover. I, I, I couldn't tell if that guy was a happy guy, if he was um, a mysterious guy. What was going on with that guy? Yeah. It, was a, it was sort of a haunting cover to me as a child. Huh. I mean, no disrespect. No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, Are you on nicotine, too? I have a little bit of... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing this. Nicotine gum problem. These are the lozenges. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're both Isn't it an absurd uh, addiction? To chew nicotine gum, the Dude, pres- the pr- all, I, I, all I can say is the president also chews nicotine sure. gum, so I, I feel it, as though I have a brother. It's not heroin. 
It's not heroin. It may lead. <laughs> no, it can't. It may lead to not brushing your teeth. Who knows? Sure, sure. It might give you a little uh, uh, TMJ. Okay. Yeah, but that's why I got off the gum. I was putting my teeth through havoc. Oh, really? So I just do these lozenges, and you can get a pretty good buzz going. So you know, that's not. It's on the level, dude. It's, it's on the level. It's, we can. It is. We. I got <laughs> off them for six months, and you know that discomfort you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, it comes right back. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that yeah. that sense of physical anxiety that fo- mm. that follows uh, withdrawal. Uh, opiate withdrawal and that that is basically the heart of it. the The way I got my body back yeah. was three hours a day of absolutely Olympic training. I mean, I just at the age of thirty five threw myself into exercise um, in a way that you know for the endorphins. Yeah. That, that was the only way I could stand to live in my own skin. Anymore. Do you still do it? I've I backed off it somewhat, um, yeah. but I still need it. I wish I could, like I I've exercised in my life, but never enough to get that addiction thing going. I really would like to do that. I mean, I'm fifty, going to be fifty two, and I and I just uh, and I've exercised in my life, and I've gone through periods of it, but I never. I'm like, where's this high? Wait, you know, I mean, I got maybe I got to go further. I got to go harder. That's I, right. You I never to, got the the payoff. Yeah, that's right. You gotta go. <laughs> you, got, you have to find the thing you like to do. But yeah, there, what did you a, like? There's running? a lot of things out there. No, I I uh, um, when I was in New York, I did aerobics classes. I oh know yeah, it sounds uh, a a little pathetic, but but I I did. I used to go and just uh, sweat. You know, dance to uh, disco music, whatever it was. Uh, no shame in that. People do the the things at home with the videotapes now. It's not aerobics. It's a much more alpha uh, aerobics. These these workout videos now. Right. Gorillas jumping on things. Right, but it, but it, you know, it, it's sort of uh, between AA meetings and uh, mm-hmm. and and exercise uh, uh, group exercise. That was sort of my life. Oh know? yeah, and I, I, yeah. <laughs> and it brought me through a period of time. Uh, Oh, that's good, man. Uh, yeah, you still so, active? But but uh, then I I got into a cr- uh, like cross country skate skiing. I got into uh, bike riding. I got into long distance hiking. I got into uh, yeah, you know, paddle boarding. I got into a whole bunch of stuff. So I, so I, it's uh, good. You're fit. I I still yeah. I think it it you know I overdid it. Yeah, and and I wore out a knee and I you know. But generally speaking, I think it was my salvation. It was. Well, good and. And and I think it was that it was like I I I channeled my inner Viking. You yeah, know? yeah, the Viking. You like the Viking. I like the Viking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Viking. Yeah, and, and you did it. I think I was meant to do it. You know, I think I'm meant to be physically active. And, and I don't think uh, anyone would assume that necessarily that uh, James Taylor has an inner Viking. I think we're all happy to know that. You know, yeah, it's <laughs> it's true. I I, I do well. I, you know, I th- I think that I, I, a lot of the early stuff that I wrote was uh, was supposed to uh sort of soothe me or yeah. um work through the feelings probably and, and you know i think you were hinting at it it was sort of like musical heroin uh-huh. or musical uh um palliative kind uh-huh. of thing you uh-huh. know um therapeutic or something you know and and so i think people think of me that way but you know in fact if if you if you know my my, you know, if you come to my show a lot, there's a there's a lot of celebration in it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of energy in it too. Sure. So. Well, the, the, with the first record, what, you know, what was the story behind that? Well, um, the, uh, the Apple album, as I said, the 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 Flying Machine, our, our bass player quit, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and we uh, we crashed. Right. Uh, and the the band uh, just disbanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was uh, living in an apartment on. Uh, uh, the Upper West Side, which in those days, in the in the um, 
in the mid '60s was uh, was kind of a war zone. And um, and how strung out were you? You were functional? No, I, I was strung out. Yeah, yeah. And I I was out of any source of of money. And I I think that uh, had I stayed in that apartment for the next couple of months, I might have uh, gotten into some uh, some r- criminal real, business, real trouble. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I I spoke to my dad. My my uh, my my dad called me on the phone and and uh, um, I said uh, he said you don't sound too good to me James and I said uh, Dad I I can't lie to you I'm not yeah. doing so good and right he said well w- what's your address and I mm. I told him that I was in uh, on 84th and, and Amsterdam he he said uh, stay right there and I mean I mean right there stay right there and 12 hours later he showed up with a with a station wagon and took me back home and which. Which was a there. There was a song I wrote called uh, "Jump Up Behind Me," which was written uh, about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he, he, it's like you know, your mom has such a huge amount to do with who you are, but your dad, you just need a. Uh, you can you can make a dad out of just three or four. Uh, important points, you know what I mean. You can assemble a decent dad, and and that was a big one, you know. Uh, yeah. What did you? Was that song on Hourglass? Which which album was that? It was on Hourglass because that was like uh, uh, that. What, what were you like? How well, you were pretty sober by then, but it was a pretty reflective record. Yeah, it was, but it, it um, you know, over time, I've gotten better at better at making these records and of uh, having a. a an idea of what the music is going to sound like, and and coming closer and closer to what that ideal is, mm. um, and that that's another reason why I wanted to to get you know back into the studio and make a make this album. I don't know if it's the last. It, certainly, if I wait another thirteen years, it's the last one that I'll make. But um, it's a real James Taylor record. Yeah, I think it is. And, and when you were driving down with your dad, I mean, were you sweating? And 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 you know, did he know exactly what was going on? And and he exuded a a certain level of support and understanding that was surprising. You know, I I just can't remember the the. Yeah. I think I slept through most of sure. it. Sure. You know. I, yeah. I was. You know, I, I was uh, malnourished and and uh, hadn't had any sleep, and and I, I just needed to hole up and rest for a long time. But he showed up. He showed up. That's fucking beautiful, he man. Did, he did show up. He heard it. Mm. He heard he heard me, and he came and got me. And I, I I'll never forget it. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. So so you got it together, and then you went to England. I did. Um, I spent about six months at home. Yeah. And I didn't. You know, I I clearly wasn't going to go to college, and uh, you know. Things were, I could see, were terrible at home, mm. and uh, um, just falling to pieces. My my mom and dad weren't communicating at mm-hmm. all, and my brother Alex was in some bad trouble, and uh, my brother and younger brother and sister were in McLean's, and and I I I stuck around for a while. I I still had a habit, uh, and you know I I told my folks, um, listen, just take me to a trip to to uh to England uh and just uh, enough money to get started over there I'm going to go and visit a friend uh I've got my songs I got my guitar I went over and stayed with uh with a friend uh that I'd known from uh, the summer times on on Martha's Vineyard who was living in in London at the time uh and I met some people who were enthusiastic about my music I made a demo I got back in touch with Danny Korchmar in New York and I said uh 
because I knew he had met Peter Asher, and I was trying to find people who might listen to my, my music. The producer. Yeah. yeah. And Peter had just taken a job as, as a, a head of A&R. An A&R person finds new yeah. talent for, for a record company. For Apple? For Apple Records, and they hadn't signed anyone yet. They hadn't released anyone yet. And um, so... Uh, That's the Beatles label. Uh, that was the Beatles label. Uh, Peter heard my... Uh, my songs, he said, uh, let's go play them for, uh, for Paul. Wow. I played uh, Something in the Way She Moves for Paul McCartney and George Harrison. And uh, and George ripped off the line? Well, I <laughs> hey, mean, I yet. had ripped off so many Beatles <laughs> songs. I mean, it, it hardly... Uh, it, was easy, it was a fair trade. It was a fair trade. Uh, yeah. Indeed it was. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, uh, you know... We like to say, uh, yeah, man, I liked your song so much, I went home and wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you so, get to meet Paul. Here you are, the, this this like shaky kid. Absolutely. And he had these songs. But you must have had everything that you have for, for them to recognize that. Right? I mean, for Peter to go like, you know, this guy's got something unique. Yeah, I think it was Peter who saw it. And Peter said, uh, uh, you know, Paul said to Peter, uh, well, do you want to produce a record f for this guy and uh, and we'll release it? And, and Peter said, yeah, I do. What was it like meeting Paul and George? You know, a little bit like uh, the second coming. I don't know. Uh, was John there too or was uh, it mostly? John was around. They, us, were, all, they us. were all there. Well, we were recording at, at uh, not at Abbey Road, but, but at, at Trident uh -huh. Studios because Trident had the only... A functioning eight-track recorder in in England uh -huh. at the time. And what were they recording? They were the White Album. So they were about it at at wit's end with each other, I imagine, by that point. Well, they were still uh, doing amazing work. That's you know? for sure. Yeah. And uh, and they uh, in between their marathon sessions, I'd I'd come into the studio and and do a uh, you know we'd do a couple of. Uh, and my the drummer from uh, f Joel O'Brien came over to play drums on the song. Oh, and, he did. Yeah, and uh, you know I I fell in love in London. I uh, I had a great great time. Yeah, and I so mean, you jammed with the Beatles. I did a little bit. I yeah. played with the Beatles. Uh, Paul and and George uh, both uh, um, recorded on uh, Carolina in my mind. Uh -huh. um, uh, you know uh, I was. A fly on the wall when they were listening to playbacks for oh, the White wow. Album, and it was incredible. It that, was incredible. That's amazing. It was amazing. And that and Carolina on my mind is a huge song. It's a great song. It's one. It's a lot of people's favorite James Taylor song. Uh, it, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, it is. So then, so you do that. Then why didn't you? Did you stay at that label? Well, what happened was uh, um, about six months into uh, the. Um, the experience, uh, uh, um, for some reason, uh, Yoko and, and uh, John uh, were sort of, uh, uh, they were sweet-talked and, and, and seduced by a, uh, a guy named uh, Alan Klein, who was- uh, The manager, right? Uh, he became their manager, their first manager, after uh, mm -hmm. Brian Epstein. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a mistake. Mm. Uh, but- uh, Paul and and George were were not taken in, right? And I think it's one of the things that basically polarized them. And uh, they still did some beautiful work beyond that, you know. Let it be. Let and, it be. Yeah. But that was um, it, though, right? But but uh, Alan Klein was only interested in Beatles. He didn't have any use for Mary Hopkin or Badfinger or Billy Preston or James Taylor or right you know, any Jackie Lomax. Oh, so he was put in charge of the label. He was. on a management level. Yeah. And okay. He, and he just got rid of all of us. Well, uh, uh, the the actual 
uh, mechanism was that we asked for an audit, mm-hmm. and which was in our contract, and he he just threw the contract out, and we and Peter said, well, we're out of here. This uh, this well's gone dry. Let's let's try Los Angeles. And, and then you uh, came out here to where it was here. all happening. So you were but you were on the edge of that. There was a whole new singer songwriter. That, that was the original emergence of the modern singer and songwriter, right? Where you get Crosby and Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown a little later, I Absolutely. imagine, Neil Young. Yep. So you come out here, are you part of that whole Laurel Canyon trip? To a certain extent, yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Were you welcomed with open arms? Were people like, that's James Taylor? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't, you know, I, I, Sweet Baby James was a, a, a big hit. And um, so you came out after that? No, I came out before that. Right. And the previous summer, I had, uh, you know, I'd been on the road for a while. After I got back from London, I was strung out again, and I, I rehospitalized to to uh, basically as a rehab. Yeah, that was a place in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, called uh, Austin Riggs. Mm-hmm. They weren't supposed to do that sort of work, but they did. And uh, because your dad stepped in, or well, no. Um, uh, it, in a, in a sense, my dad uh, asked somebody who recommended that as a right. place to go. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't admitted as a as a heroin addict. I was I was admitted as a psychiatric patient. But it, the the reason I was there was was to get sober. Now you just you couldn't kick on your own, obviously. And you know, but were you trying, or were you just surrendered to it? By you then? know, here's the thing. I, uh, like I said, I, I was never sort of an abandoned uh, 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 hophead. I yeah. was uh, I, w- I was. I was trying to function, right? And, and I, I did remain uh, yeah. highly functional, sure. Uh, in spite of the fact that I also uh, had an on and off uh, habit, habit going, coming and going, you know. And you it, weren't alone in that. Yeah, I no, mean that's right. Yeah, I mean it was not. It was not like you know you were some sort of freak. Uh, you know, in the communities you were running in, it was per- fairly common. Yeah. All right, so you you clean up. I mean, I, I so I I I cleaned up there in Austin Rick. This is. This is pre uh, um, uh, AA. Yeah. Uh, in the methadone. In the uh, yes, I did some methadone. Yeah. Um, I did two two uh, um, probably a combined five years on methadone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the other uh, detoxes I went to were one at Gracie Square uh, in in New York City yeah. uh, on the east side, and and another at a place called Silver Hills up in uh, in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But. I was always uh, uh, relatively functional, mm-hmm. and uh, when I came out uh, to the West Coast uh, to spend time with Peter, um, you know, we started casting about for people to to record with, and we found Carol King, we found Russ Kunkel, we found Lee Sklar, we found uh, um, a guy named Bobby West who played the uh, stand-up bass on uh, Fire and Rain. We found a, a pedal steel player named Dusty Rhodes, and we we made that. That Sweet Baby James album in about three weeks for about eight thousand bucks. Wow! At, at Sunset Sound, but one of the reasons it went so quickly and uh, was that all the material was available. Yeah. Because the summer before, so I, I in the in March I'd gotten out of Austin Riggs. Uh, I'd gone on the road for uh, about five months. And then I had a motorcycle accident, broke both my hands and both my feet. Jesus so Christ! So I was, I was in, uh, you know, I missed Woodstock. I was in, I was in plaster. Uh, Where'd uh, you go back to Chapel Hill or no, New York? I, I went to Martha's Vineyard, which is where I was living at the time. After I got out of, uh, uh, you know, rehab, I, I went to the vineyard 
Because that's what I knew. So know. before Sweet Baby James, you couldn't use your hands or your feet. That's right. And and I think that period of time really allowed me to finish some songs, you know, yeah. get, the, get the lyrics. Yeah. And uh, so that when we went into the studio to make Sweet Baby James, we, we had everything. Yeah. You know, we had it, it was all ready to go. and You'd really thought about them. And we, we had this great band. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we knocked it out fast. And then uh, Fire and Rain took off and... Um, you know, we uh, we hit the road, and and that's where I stayed. That's a great feeling, man. Fire and Rain was a huge song. It was. Uh, uh, I was, you know, I I was. It was amazing. It it was. Um, it's a painful song. You know, in a way, but uh, I I think um, it's not painful to listen to. No, no, no. I know? mean, there's a transcendent spirit I mean, to for it. Some people it is, I'm sure. But uh, well, yeah, it's one of those songs that like can be played at, at a wedding or a funeral. Right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so so that so you're 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 it now. This is a huge record. It went like triple platinum, right? It was a big record. It was. And 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 so you're a made guy in a way and you're in and you're in Los Angeles and you're hanging with uh Carol King and Joni Mitchell, did she sing on that one or No, Joni and I uh we got together after then, after You dated after Sweet Baby Dance. We lived together for a year. And, oh yeah. And uh I made, in Laurel Canyon, I'm, I'm in Laurel Canyon largely, but but also uh, we traveled together a lot because oh. uh, we were both traveling all the time. And I made a movie called uh, Two Lane Blacktop, right? The uh, an obscure was film. it was Oates Warren Oates was or uh, Warren Oates Warren Oates and Dennis Wilson. Yep. And the guy who directed it was uh, Monty was, Hellman. Monty Hellman. This like he made two movies. He had Cockfighter and Two Lane Blacktop and, and right and Ride the Whirlwind and I think another one called Riding Thumb. Yeah, I saw Two Lane Blacktop. I have it. I had a like a re-release uh, video of it. It's a, it's one of those great sort of existential seventies movies. You know, you 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 have to be uh, uh, pretty relaxed to watch that film because <laughs> man, it is flat. It is flat. How did you get into that? You know. Uh, somebody saw my picture, uh, heard the record, and said, uh, "Let's give him a try." So um, Peter thought, "Yeah, uh, movies—that's a good next step." And sure, uh, uh, so they signed me up, and uh, we did this. Uh, I've never seen the film, though. I never—I couldn't stand it. Really? It. No, I never saw it. But you did—you've done a little acting as yourself, more as a character over the years. Yeah, you here, know? And, here and there. Yeah, right? yeah. And Cameos. But, yeah. but how long between uh, Sweet Baby James and Mud Swim Swim and the Blue Horizon? Because that was the album that I played the most when I was a kid. Like my parents had Sweet Baby James, but one of my cool friends' parents had Mud Slide Swim and the Blue Horizon, and we used to play that on a cassette on the school bus. We used to listen to that album, man. I mean, like I was when I knew I was going to interview you. I just started going through my head and started singing James Taylor songs to myself. And I, it's weird how many you know, <laughs> you know, like because I knew me, I know Machine Gun Kelly. I mean, I, that was like right. one of my favorite songs on that record. And it's not the ones that were hits necessarily, but Machine Gun Kelly, I love that song. Yeah, that's Cooch's song. He wrote that. Oh, did he? Yep, yep. But on that record, you've got you've got a friend, which is a Carol King song. Yep. And you were you were very close with her. Yes, Carol and I, uh, we toured together, we recorded together, uh, we never wrote together, but... Um, Did you date? Nope, we, nope. Never, we, Professional. Were never, we were never romantic, we were never in bed together. But Great songwriter though, huh? But uh, on the bus a lot together, you mm -hmm. know, and, and on stage, and yeah. Well, great, that became a huge song. hit for you, that You've Got a Friend, huh? It really did. Uh, it, was, um, it was my only number one single, and uh, uh, it, it really, uh, it was great. That's a great one. And then, like you did, One Man Dog Walking Man, Gorilla, which I remember, 
like as a grown-up kind of 12 year old like i can't you're like when i interview musicians you know there's these moments i have where it's sort of like oh yeah i like that song oh, i like those songs oh that's a great album those two albums are great and then you look online you're like they've done 30 records <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> you right know, you know yeah but like when i was looking at the stuff it, it's there was never really a, a you always had a hit here and there. I mean, there was not a tremendous wane for you. I mean, all the way up until when you, you stopped for a few years, right? That's right. It, it's always been, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's it's always been, uh, it's the nature of my audience and the, and the nature of my um, uh, uh, distrust for the, the sort of... Uh, uh, the business side of sure. it, and the and the and the the sort of celebrity thing, uh, it seems so so profoundly false and uh, just just you know stupid sure. to me that that uh, I I've had this very sort of level kind of touring existence. Yeah, I, I've I've had sort of three bands. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe two bands. Yeah, and and the, these are communities of musicians that I work with. We travel together. We play live we record together and it's that that's the focus you know that's sure. the thing the live show that and the audience yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean your audience is a very loyal audience i mean this new record that you just put out which is uh, before this world was number one immediately uh which which really is a testament to to the people that have stayed with you you know over what 40 years now it, it is uh, 45 years is a long time you know but like i think that you know, you they, people are so emotionally connected to your tone to your songs to the feelings that you are able to to uh to to sort of make people have that they they not unlike uh you know any great artist they, they look to you as a friend and they look to you for some consistency and i think that's that's something that not all musicians have that you do have is a a tremendous amount of quality and consistency to your work you know i i do think that there is value in in continuing you know mm-hmm. and, well that's good <laughs> you know uh, and i that's I, a very positive statement it is yeah it is uh uh mm. you know i i think that um it's important not to get uh, uh, swept away by the, you know, uh, your own press or you know your people's idea that uh, you know people telling you yeah. how how uh, important you are. Um, there's a there's a thing you know. I I obviously had a uh, a childhood and an adolescence, a very happy childhood, a very troubled adolescence, uh, which gave into a a, a, a long period of uh, of uh, addiction, which resolved itself kind of late in life, mm-hmm. you know? and, and you know how it is. If you if you if you're addicted, you don't make any headway in sort of learning how to live. You, you just you circle, just, you just you, spiral. You, you, you know, it's just you come in cycles. Well, I mean, was it when you were married to Carly Simon? You guys did some great work together. Was it the drugs that broke that down that that really led to the end of that? You know, it was really that I was I just wasn't uh, a, a suitable. To, uh, a to, grown up. <laughs> I, I just wasn't a grown up. I yeah. wasn't a, 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 a decent husband. I, mm-hmm. I, it was an impossible uh, project to right. take me on as a as a husband. Well, what and made you hit bottom to the point where you 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 really like grabbed it by the horns and and did what was necessary? You know, put your sobriety first, and you know all the sayings and and what what made what hammered that home really? What series of events? Well, other than age, well, I think age had part of it, and just uh, it was a part of it. But um, I think that you know, you you, um, you just get sick and tired of uh, being sick and tired. Sure. You li- live the same day over and over. You again. You lose a lot of friends. 
You lose a lot of friends. A lot of people died, and um, my brother died, and um, you know, you have these jackpots where you're humiliated and and uh, mortified and just brought low by your by your disease. Uh, it's having, embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing and humiliating and mortifying. And, and you were friends with Belushi too, right? Yeah, John was a close friend, and down the vineyard, and down on the vineyard and yeah. in New York. And, yeah, and uh, you know, I uh, that. Uh, losing John was, uh, you know, I have a song called "That's Why I'm Here," and John's the second verse is about John, and uh, mm. and that it that it really, it it woke me up a little bit to, to mm. have him die. So, um, you know, and I myself uh, can count five times when I really should not have uh, started breathing again. You mm. know, and so as a result, um, uh, and you know, I had these. I found myself addicted again and back in the cycle again when I promised myself I was free, and and I finally said, "This is, this is it." You know, I've got to get clean. And I had a friend. Um, uh, he's gone now. Uh, Hep C circled back and and got so many people oh, uh, yeah. twenty years after they got sober. You know, and now they got a cure for it. Now they got a cure, and and he could have, could have lived. Just but, missed it, huh? Yeah, but mm. um. He he brought me in uh, a sax player who who played on a lot of my stuff uh, and a genius uh, mm-hmm. named Michael Brecker, and Brecker uh, um, I I had seen him you know he's taller than I am and he 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 weighed 120 pounds and I didn't think I'd see him again. A year later I bump into him and he's like glowing with health and sort of <laughs> wow. pink and alive and <laughs> cheerful and you know and and just and I I said wow what what happened to you man he said well if you're really interested. I got it. Get in touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I did. We're going to go hang out. Yeah. A lot. And he brought me along and a lot of other people too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He was that guy. Yeah. The the recovery Pied Piper. That's right. For a a large community in New York. Because like if one of those guys, especially the guy that everyone thinks is going to die, shows up looking golden, people are, then then there's that that moment where you're like, I want what he's got. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. If that guy can do it, I can do it. That's right. Well, that's a fucking beautiful story. Yeah, it is. It's... it, it's uh, my favorite story. Yeah, and h- how long ago did he pass? Uh, Michael died five years ago. Oh, that's a shame. And but he, but he he died sober. He did. He yeah. did indeed. And uh, good quality it, of life. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and I mean his his uh, his children and his daughters and his his uh, widow. You know they miss him, and we all miss him. Mm. Uh, but but he did a lot. He he really did a lot for a lot of people. How and many kids do you have? Guys. Uh, I got four kids. I've got uh, Sally and Ben uh, are um, Sally's thirty-one. Um, ben is uh, um, excuse me, forty-one, and and uh, Ben is uh, thirty-eight. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh huh. And Rufus and Henry are twins, and they're fourteen. Uh huh. So uh, so you got from two marriages, two, and and you get along with every all of them. Uh, you know. I don't really speak to the um, the ex-wives uh, very very much. Uh-huh. I mean, I uh, Carly and I share uh, um, I have two kids, but they're they're adults. Yeah, and and I, I I can go straight to them now. But you get along with them? I I do, uh, but it, it wouldn't be. Uh, it, I'd be lying to say that we had a relationship. Sure. Uh, so, but I met Kim uh, in. Uh, Your current wife, yeah, yeah, and and my last wife, uh-huh. and my, you know, the 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 person with whom I really finally found, mm. um, uh, I was finally ready mm-hmm. myself, and it's a miracle that she was that she was available, mm-hmm. to. and 
Uh, she was working with the Boston Symphony. I was doing a, um, a Boston Pops gig with John Williams, and she had, for years, had worked with Williams. So uh, I met her backstage um, a year and a half later. Hmm. Not good. Doesn't sound good. It kind of had an, an mm. echo to it. That, that that definitely sounded like a gunshot. It did a big one too. Yeah, not too far away. You know, should we go check on the people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should we vacate? What happened? Should we be worried? Oh, I don't think so. How, where was it? Like, right down the street. What, what, what? I don't know. It just it didn't sound right. Come on in. <laughs> Sounded like a shotgun. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I don't think you should be worried. You could go in the house, but hang out here. We're going to finish up soon. It now reminds me, I, I have an apartment in New York City on, on, uh, on Central Park West, um, uh, between 30, uh, 73rd and 74th streets uh-huh. in, a, in a building called the Langham. I lived on the sixth floor of that yeah, building. Yeah. And just outside my window, uh, between 72nd and 73rd, was the Dakota. Sure. And one night I was uh, I was sitting in the window, and um, I heard five shots, you know, five. And it sounded to me like a thirty eight. And yeah. I'd been told before that when, when the uh, police... Uh, you, Drew and, and fired their gun that they emptied it, yeah. and always kept an empty cylinder under the under the hammer. Yeah. Uh, so I I thought that it was a police shooting. Sure. And uh, um, my uh, Peter Ash's wife called me up uh, and said uh, that that was I was I was on the phone to her when I heard the shots, and I said it's crazy here the the police just shot someone down the street, and she said uh, she called me back twenty minutes later and said that was that was John. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. That guy who shot him was uh, just troubled, horrible. Yeah, person. I, I met I met the guy that uh, two days previous. He he had sort of buttonholed me coming out of the subway on uh, at seventy seven. So he was Street. lingering. You know, he was hanging around. Mark David Chapman. Yeah, and uh, and he was uh, he was clearly uh, possessed. You know, yeah. he he like uh, attached himself to me as I was coming. He up knew who stairs. you were. So they, yeah, he said, uh, you know, I've I've got I've been working on some some songs and uh and i man i need to talk to you i need to and i sort of scraped him off and and ducked into my building and and then it turned out uh, oh, and he did it. he went after literally John. a day a day oh, later god it's horrible yeah. let's go back to the good story the symphony your your current wife working at the symphony yeah so um uh, uh i met kim then yeah but i remembered her um uh, I had had a watch, a pocket watch, yeah. uh, and, and um, it was uh, mi- went missing from the dressing room at yeah. the Boston Symphony. You know, I played in in places where the dressing rooms were, were you know, were, sure. were really uh, you didn't put anything down that you didn't want to have. I stolen. lost an iPhone like that. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, I figured it was safe backstage at the Boston Symphony, <laughs> but my watch was stolen. I swear. Oh shit. Uh, She she denies it, but I think I made the whole thing up. But I yeah. so I called her back the next day, and that's how I had her number. Yeah. So. Uh, a year later, when I when my marriage uh, uh, had that that was I was separated at the time that I met her, but I was finally f- clear of it. Yeah, I I called her up and and asked if she wanted to get together, and she sort of said no, not really. And then <laughs> and then I called her again six months later, and and she uh, she agreed to come and and meet me. Because uh, a, a friend of hers had said that I wasn't so bad after all. Uh, and now it's like a timeless relationship. So here's a watch tie-in. That's right. And you, and you found love and you, you feel like it's the right thing and you were ready for it. It's a beautiful story, James. 
It is. I, I've written uh, how many songs to Kim now? I, I wrote Mean Old Man. I wrote Caroline, I See You. That's her name. Uh-huh. It's Caroline. Um, I I wrote uh, You and I again from this new album. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I uh, she's a, a the the best thing to happen to me really in this since recovery. Well, you know, I I, I know you got to go, and I, it was a real honor to talk to you. And the new album's great, and it's, it's you seem. Uh, fit and in good shape and i was flattered that you came in and played all my guitars well thanks uh, mark uh, uh, it, it was great i uh um I, I hope we get a chance to hang out again at some point so. I'd, I'd love to I, right. i'll come when i come to new england i'll come to your house i'll play your guitars all right that sounds good all right thanks man all right what an amazing conversation I got to tell you, I I thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to James Taylor, and I feel like we could hang out again, have some tea or coffee, have some nicotine products, maybe play some guitars in his in his studio. I love him. I it was a it was very it was a very nourishing and fulfilling conversation with a like minded individual and a fucking legend. I uh, I really enjoyed having James Taylor over. That record is uh, before this world. It's available now. Hey. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get some JustCoffee.coop. Get the Howl Premium. You know, get on the mailing list. So uh, I don't. I haven't not prepared any guitar, but I have it. I got it. I got it. Boomer Lynn.